Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? It's good to see all of you folk in the building. Good to see some faces we haven't seen in a while. And if you're watching online, be good to see you back soon as well. Just, uh, I've been to a few of those gift wrapping sessions with the, uh, the young, young adults. And as you could see on the little banner, it said, bring your scissors. That's actually for your protection. <laughs> if you thought you're going to cut some wrap, no, no, no. As the oaks come to wrap you, that's for your... No, no, it's actually not. It's, uh, it's really... I'd encourage you to go to those things. It's a lovely place to connect and just be a part of uh, the greater thing that we're doing by blessing those children. So uh, really excited to see that. And also, as uh, I brought to our midweek services attention, if you cast your eyes to that uh, 700 brick challenge wall, wouldn't you agree that uh, God's hand has been upon this? I mean, that's 400 and something. What is it? 481,000 bucks that has come in since we started that brick challenge. So well done, church. That's basically where I'm going. Well done, because it's that's your generosity that has been poured into that wall. And uh, really exciting to see all the walls going up and everything starting to take shape in our coffee shop and in our main hall. So uh, let's keep trusting. Let's keep uh, faithfully sowing. And let's get this building done and dusted in Jesus' name. Amen. So really excited to be able to share with you guys this morning. And... Uh, I have to admit, straight up honesty, when Brent said we're going to be sharing on Revelations, I was like, yikes. I mean, Revelation is not an easy book to read, is it? I said, well, that's cool. I mean, people really do need to hear about the things in Revelations on one condition, Brent. You preaching about all the horns and all the hohos. I ain't going to be preaching on no hohos. But thankfully, thankfully, that's not the case. And maybe you're not familiar with the journey we're on, maybe you knew, maybe you missed just the first couple of parts, but we're on a journey going through the letters written by John to the seven churches in Asia, and written by John, but inspired by Jesus, instructed by Jesus. And I'm excited because I believe it teaches us as this church now what to be aware of, what to look out for, and what to guard, and what to guard against. And this is why we've titled this journey, Guardians of the Gospel. And you might be thinking, well, why do we need to guard this gospel? Surely. Well, Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. It's not our wisdom, it's not our cleverness, but it's the power of the gospel that saves. And so we need to be protecting this. Remember that the gospel will never, ever lose its power. The work that Jesus on the, did on the cross will never lose its significance. But what can happen if we do not guard this gospel is that it can lose its power inside of us. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of, a part of it. If we are losing that gospel power inside of us, guess what happens? We as the church is losing its effectiveness and power. This is why the title of this journey, as fictional as it sounds, and I, I must admit, once again, to be honest, it did sound like a bit of a Star Trek movie title to me when I first heard it, but it holds an incredible weight and a truth to it, should we want to be effective and sustainable as the church. Shared with our, our midweek service that, when I was looking at this title, I was reminded of a very personal story that my wife and a couple of friends went through, an experience. Who's, who's ever been to Tangami, a place near Freyheit? 
one or two of you. Well, let me tell you, it's a beautiful place. Borders the, uh, I think it's the Mflozy Black River. And uh, one of the standout things was that, you know, we got to camp there, but then they also have this crocodile pen. And we got to see some massive crocodiles. I mean, these were not like dinky toys. These are actually like four or five meter crocodiles. Incredible. We also decided to go white water rafting or tubing the next day. Because, I mean, rapids and tubes, amazing. So we're busy cruising down this river. My wife is on the same tube as I am. And uh, we were lucky enough to spot a little baby crocodile, about 40 centimeters. It's just lying in the water. And we cruised up to this whole bunch of us, and it was amazing. I mean, when do you get to, to mix with crocodiles in their own space? Needless to say, we continued down this river, and uh, I saw in front of us quite a, quite a hairy-looking rapid coming up. And the water began to flow a bit quicker. So I thought, oh, I'll just jump off quickly just to slow my wife and I down because I, I, you know, I don't know how she's going to, I mean, I love it, but I don't want to put her in danger. So I jumped off and, and I couldn't stand. So I had to jump back on and say, well, hold on, dear. And we managed to navigate this, uh, this rapid and it was incredible. And I loved it. And until one of our friends who was just in front of us screamed, crocodile! And in that moment, I turned to my left and I managed to catch a glimpse of about a two-and-a-half-meter crocodile diving into the water. Luckily, I jumped off and I could stand by the grace of God. And I stopped us and I pulled Yoli off the tube and I began to just watch the movement of this crocodile because it was going straight for our friend. It's kind of a bittersweet moment because I was like, at least it's not coming for us. But... (laughs) But, but in that moment, I was so grateful to be able to see that, that she actually got off the tube and was able to navigate to the side of, of the river, which was littered in thorn bushes. But that didn't stop her. She just ran straight through these thorn bushes, which is, oh, I mean, obvious. You have to. It's the choice you need to make. Needless to say, after about two seconds had passed and, and the croc had realized, well, I can't chow her, so the croc turned and beelined or crocland, whatever you call it, straight for my wife and I. It was in that moment that I realized that at all cost, I needed to guard Yoli. At all cost, I needed to guard Yoli. Luckily, I mean, as you can see, we, we did make it. And uh, I'm still getting used to the plastic arms, but I mean, that's fine. We'll, we'll get used to it. I'm just, I'm just joking. It's a bad joke. The point is this, we need to have the same mentality when it comes to protecting the gospel inside of us. To guard it, to defend it at all costs. If we lose this power within us, then we are rendered useless against the enemy's attacks and we cannot advance the kingdom of God, which he has called us to do. So part three today, and uh, a little bit of a recap first. And remember, the first letter was written to a church in Ephesus. And this letter was compelling the church to come back to their first love. Doctrinally, they were sound, their methods were okay, but but Jesus found them to be operating out of a, a place of duty rather than operating from being in love with him. And he was saying, church, come back, come back to your first love. Part two was the letter written to Smyrna. And this was compelling the church to see suffering as part of the journey. 
Remember what Brent said. He says, actually, the enemy, his plan is to shrink us. But God is saying, actually, no, no, no. This is how I mature you. This is how you grow in me. And this is how I stretch you. Today, we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. And uh, we're going to read that bit of scripture now. But right up front, I want to say that I believe that God was calling this church to move from compromising on his word to being fully committed to his word once again. In other words, not to contaminate it, not to add anything to it, and most certainly not to remove anything from it. So Revelation 2, 12 to 17, you can follow up on the screen. I'm going to read the, the NIV version. Okay. So we're all going to. 12 to 17, it says this. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. And remember, we've ascertained that this is like not a floaty angel, but this is probably to the lead elder of the church. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. In other words, they didn't publicly declare not to have faith in Jesus. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among, some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed, committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So right at the sharp end, excuse the pun, we are introduced to this picture of Jesus with this double-edged sword. On the one side, you have this incredible grace and mercy, the, 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 the grace and mercy that, that frees, that cuts away the chains for the one who truly believes in him. Then you have the other side of the sword, which Jesus uses to judge, to expose, and to cut away. In this context, in the Pergamum context, this is Jesus as judge. Jesus as the one you cannot bamboozle. Jesus as the one you cannot fool. Jesus as the one you cannot coerce into compromising faith or truth. This sword is the sword of his word, and it extends from his mouth. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. This is the beautiful revelation that we get, to intru- get introduced to of Jesus, the one holding that sword. So we move on to verse 13 where Jesus begins to commend the church. And he says, I know where you dwell. As the all-knowing God and head of the church, he says, I know where you live. He is aware and he fully understands their circumstances. Maybe you hear this morning and so often you find yourself asking the question, if only you knew God. If only you knew then you would understand why I do the things that I do. 
Can I say to you that God knows where you dwell? Can I say to you that God knows your circumstances? He knows your situation. He knows where you dwell. He says to the church, he is aware and fully understands. He says he knows that they dwell where Satan's throne is. That's quite a hectic description because if you actually look at some of the scriptures, you would know that that Satan's throne and Satan's presence is actually felt throughout this entire world. John 12, 31 says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. The prince of this world. Ephesians 2, 1-2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. See, I believe that Jesus uses this description for the church, or for Pergamum rather, because Satan's throne was so prevalent in that city due to all the idolatry that was taking place. In fact, I don't think you could have been a committed Christian in Pergamum without coming under some form of persecution. All industry, all society was committed, connected, sorry, to some form of idolatry. The very culture of the city was built up and around the worshipping of multiple gods and goddesses. In fact, we read that all people from all over the country used to come to Pergamum to worship these gods and goddesses. Zeus, Athena, Asclepius, I mean Asclepius, the god of medicine. And Jesus says, I know. I know where you dwell. He understands that they dwell in the midst of all this evil. He knows that Satan is the enemy himself. But he says, yet you hold fast to my name. You do not deny me even when faced with persecution, church. You stood firm. Even when Antipas, my witness, my faithful, was killed among you. Do you want a title? Or a label here on earth. Be labeled or titled my faithful by Jesus. Imagine that. My faithful, Quentin. My faithful, Nikki. My faithful, Denim. Who was Antipas? Don't really know. Maybe he was a leader in the church. Maybe he was an elder. Maybe he was a super deacon like Herman. Maybe he was on the cappuccino team. We have no idea. But what we do know is that he was martyred for his faith. He was a man who paid the price for his refusal to compromise on his faith. I have to stop and ask myself the question when I was preparing this. Would I have been commended or would I be commended with such titles if I came under such persecution like Antipas? Just food for thought. So after commending them for keeping faith, for courageously holding fast to his name, even if it meant death, Jesus says, that being said, I do have one or two things that I'd love to bring to your attention. And he moves on to the nevertheless. And he begins to condemn the church because some people in the church were holding on to false teachings. In other words, they were compromising on God's word. They were contaminating it. They were adding to it and they were removing from it as they saw fit. See, it wasn't actually persecution that, that, church, that this church was falling foul to, but rather the church was falling foul to another tactic that the devil uses to try and trip up God's people. 
It's evident then, and I believe it's still evident now, and that is why we have to pay special attention as the church now so that we know what to be aware of. So that being said, I'd love to just bring to our attention two tactics that the devil loves to use to try and trip up his people. I'm not talking hailstorms to the church building. We've had two hailstorms in Riches Bay, which has been weird over the last week. But rather, I'm talking about spiritual attacks to his people. Because I've said it once, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it until I head back to the dust, is that we are the church. Not this building that we're in, but we are the church as the people. So the first tactic that he loves to use is that he persecutes the church. And most often, at least with true believers, persecution has actually backfired on the devil and made the church a lot stronger and purer. The second, second tactic is a little bit different, though. This tactic is often a lot more subtle and a lot more effective. Because what he does is he, he's a, he doesn't attack us from the outside. But what he does is he begins to seduce us from the inside. Just as he did with that church in Pergamum. He gets us off track and he switches the real gospel with a false gospel. He tricks us into thinking that there are other things as important as serving Christ and loving his people. Not more important, but as important. He gets us to compromise on God's word. He gets us to believe that holiness is actually an option and that a true commitment to Jesus is just far too radical and very weird. In his seduction, he gets us to think that actually, you know what, then I'm sin, sin's not that bad. He wants us to think that we can have the best of both worlds. Now, uh, I shared this illustration example at our midweek service as well. I don't know if you've seen, and I've got nothing against Albany Bakery. I really, I love their bread. I love any bread. But Albany make a bread that's called best of both. I'm sure some of us can relate. Now, it's a white bread, but it has the health benefits of brown bread. Now, to me, when I pick up that packet of, well, white bread, it, it looks like white bread. If you want the health benefits of brown bread, buy brown bread? No, no, really. It's the same with the church. If we want the health benefits of white bread, then we cannot be eating health benefits of brown bread. Then we cannot be eating the white bread. We cannot be eating worldly things and then expect kingdom results. We cannot be eating worldly things and yet still expect kingdom results. He says, you can have Jesus and all that the world has to offer. He says, look around. He says, every other church is doing it. I mean, look at solid ground. We love you, solid ground, especially on Sundays. And because of our sinful nature and the desires of our flesh, we swallow that lie. And we take the bait and we eat it, hook, line, and we even chow the sinker. We often forget though, James 4, verse 4 says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? 
I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Quote from Tony Evans said, Compromise is the cancer of the church, and we must rid Christ's body of it. While Christians can compromise on preferences, they cannot compromise on principles. We can't be the one way on Sunday and another on Monday. This is the major problem among Christians today. We don't take a stand. We don't keep our standards. We merely shift to satisfy society. This church in Pergamum will actually fall in foul to, to two, two teachings. Um, one of Balaam and the other ones of the Nicolaitans. And I'm not going to go too deep into that. But Balaam was basically to compromise on what you knew to be morally right. In other words, to put something in front of God's people to try and intentionally trip them up along their journey with him. For the church in Pergamum, it began with eating foods that were sacrificed to idols. But then further down along the line, it, it turned into full-on spiritual idolatry. What about the teachings of the, the Nicolaitans? Well, from the church in Ephesus, the Nicolaitans were, were followers of Nicholas. I know, very original. Who apparently taught that you were freeing Christ to do whatever you want. In other words, you had a license to sin. You've been saved now, so just go for it. You have a license. You have found a bit of mercy, maybe a little bit of grace as well. So go for it. No consequences. So you combine these two hybrid teachings and you just simply can compromise on God's word. You can add a little bit of what the world is doing. And uh, all the while you can maintain your reputation of being an upright, true and uh, true follower of Jesus. Which according to his word is not true. Romans 12, 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. In other words, we cannot simply, as followers of Jesus, just copy the behavior of this world. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commands, not the world's commands. 1 John 2, 4 to 6 says, if someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in, in God should live their lives as Jesus did. I love that. Live your life as Jesus did. One quote from a, a church official in India, and he, he said it was off the record. He said, don't persecute the Christians or they will become strong and spread out. Instead, wherever you find Christians grouped together, build cinemas Build drinking halls, build nightclubs and gambling dens, and they will destroy themselves. And this is all too often the case. We worship Jesus on a Sunday morning, and we put on a Christian radio station as we're heading to church. If you've got one of those fancy cars with those little TV screens in the back, you even saw me put some God TV in for the children. And then we go home, and we worship pleasure and money and success or self, and even we worship these good-feeling earthly relationships. See, spiritual compromise isn't choosing other gods to worship instead of Jesus. Spiritual compromise is trying to include the worship of other gods in our worship of Jesus. Christians should live in this world, but not be filled by it. In other words, just as a ship lives in water, but if the water gets inside of the ship, what happens? It sinks. So Christians may live in the world, 
But if the world gets into them, into them, we sink. Now please hear my heart here. Because we have been called to live in this world. But we have also been called to share the good news. To shine our light. To be different. Yes, we have been called to be here. But we haven't been called to let the world inside of us. So what does compromise look like? I've jotted down a few things. I cannot relate to all of these things. Maybe you can relate to some of them. Maybe you know of some people who can relate to them. I know I shouldn't, but why not? Surely it won't hurt. It just, it just feels right. I know that I shouldn't be sleeping with my partner before marriage, but ach, you know what, just, just this one time. I know that I shouldn't be giving into bribes or backhands, but I simply won't get or land this project if I don't. Business owners, I know we can relate with this. If I can't beat them, well, I might as well just join them. Surely God knows my heart. I'll join them on a drunken night out just to maintain our good earthly friendships. The problem is, just like for the church in Pergamum, in spiritual compromise, all it takes is just one step, and then another step, and another step. And what we find is we move away from our convictions and God's word and towards destruction. Don't be fooled by the just this one time mentality. It's caught many people out. Galatians 5 verse 9 says, This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of the dough. Sin, begun, sin begins in the mind, develops in our heart, and is outworked through our body. That's, where it, that's why the scripture is clear. It says, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. That's where this gospel is going to sit. Guard the gospel. All sin can be traced back to an initial moment of compromise. So very quickly, I know we, over time, what does, what would compromise look like in a worldly context then? Just to give an illustration. What happens if the world compromised 1%? Vodacom and all your cell phone provider would have no signal for 14 minutes every day. 1.7 million pieces of mail would be lost each day. 35,000 newborn babies are dropped by doctors or nurses each year. That's a scary one. 200,000 people get the wrong medication each year. Unsafe drinking water for three days a year. Three misspelled words on the average page of typing. And I know here at Outlook Church we strive for more. And we nail it most times. Two million people would die from food poisoning each year. I know it's just a silly example, but this shows us the power of a 1% compromise. Imagine what compromise is doing to the church, friends, because we choose to compromise in God's word. Jesus then responds as we move on with a command, and he gives the church the only remedy that could save them from destruction. He says, repent, 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 or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, we should be really excited about the return of Jesus, but we should be really fearful of a premature return. Jesus identifies himself to the church as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. This sword is coming out of his mouth. It's his word. This sword, remember, is used in judgment. If you do not repent of your compromise, Jesus says, I will come with my judgment and my word, and you will reap what you've sown. 
but as gracious as he is, he offers the church in Pergamum, and I believe he offers it to us as well, a chance, a chance to repent of our compromises. Not only that, he offers a reward to those who are victorious over this compromise. And, and we had a great discussion on our connect group. You know, God, I don't believe God offers us rewards because that's like a shiny orange carrot. I think he offers rewards because that's his nature. That's his goodness. That's his love for us. Jesus was calling for the purification of the church. If you repent and are victorious, I will give you some hidden manna, a white stone on it, and a stone with a new name written on it. Remember that hidden manner, friends, and again, not diving into details for time's sake, is I believe is true food that sustains us. We get this beautiful example in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Old Testament, God rains down manna from, from heaven to supply the needs of the Israelites when they were going through the desert. The New Testament, Jesus says, I am the very bread of life. Jesus will give us some of this hidden manna, true food that sustains us as victors. A white stone in Roman times, if you participated in the Roman games and you were victorious, you would get given this white stone. Now that white stone was basically your ticket into the victor's banquet, this elaborate banquet. Because you were a victor, you got this white stone, your ticket in. Maybe our white stone, maybe your white stone would be your ticket into your eternal inheritances. A new name, and I believe... And I love that it says only, only you and God will know that name. It's very personal. God wants to give you a new name. Signifies just that personal relationship he wants to have for you and his love that he has for us. So as we, as we bring it into land this, this morning, I'd love for us to just honestly take, take stock. Let's do an evaluation. Examine our lives just to see if we are in any way compromising on God's word. A church in Pergamum had a choice to make, and I believe that we have the choice to make as well as individuals. They could repent and receive all the blessings of eternal life in heaven, or they could refuse to repent and face the terrifying truth of Jesus declaring war on them. Lovingly, calling a sin an addiction or a habit is just one of the ways we justified in our lives. The Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. We live in a world of toleration, a world of compromising. Anything and everything that makes us feel good must be good. Anything and everything that makes us suffer a little bit less, obviously that must be from God, which you've learned from the last letter is not. And so often when we call something out as sin, we often offend people or we people who are judge, judging. God's word is very clear on what sin is. And we cannot tolerate it in our lives or in other lives of our fellow friends. Instead, we must stand firmly on God's word at all cost. Lovingly, as a group of pastors here at Outlook Church, if we are always preaching messages that make you feel comfortable, can I say that we're completely missing the point then? God's word is alive and active, it exposes, it cuts, it hurts sometimes, but so does surgery. And sometimes God wants to do some surgery on us. He doesn't want a religious church, he wants a church that is committed to his word and a church that is pure because it does so. Let us be aware 
not to, be, not to be seduced into tolerating or not to be seduced into thinking that tolerating or, or, or compromising on his word will actually make our lives any better. And maybe in the short run, it might. But in the long run, it won't. John is clear. He says, only if we feast on the word of God, then we will have life and life in abundance. Let us be the committed church that God has called us to by not compromising on his word. Nothing more, nothing less. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Won't you stand with me quickly, please? Sorry, I do know we are over time a little bit. I'd love to just pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray that it... uh, It goes to work in people's hearts this morning, Father. Thank you that you are trying to identify things in our lives, Lord, not to uh, not to harm us, Father, but to rather to give us life and life in abundance, Father. I pray, Lord, that you will give us wisdom in identifying things that uh, we may have let in through the back door, Father. That uh, it might not seem harmful, Lord, but we know that it harms and compromises your word, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive and active. Thank you that it is the power that saves. Thank you that it's not our wisdom or cleverness, Lord Jesus, but rather your gospel that saves people, Lord. So I pray, Lord, help us. Help us to deal with things that aren't from you. Help us to cut and remove those things that aren't from you, Lord. We want to be dedicated. We want to be committed to your word, Lord Jesus. Let our eyes always be fixed on you and what you are doing. Use us. Let your gospel, Lord, flow through and in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As Scott was sharing, I was reminded, you know, the word tells us that Jesus in his second coming, he's coming for a bride that is without spot or blemish. Spot or blemish. And so I was listening and hearing what Scott was saying, but in the background I was asking the Holy Spirit, well, reveal to me where the spots and where the blemishes are in my life so that I can take ownership today. Today, not this afternoon, not tomorrow, not this week. No, today. Today. So that when God returns, I am part of a bride that is without spots or blemish. Amen.